0: Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7 once again as we come back to what is the final section in the Sermon on the Mount. I often use uh, an illustration of placebos as an analogy for what I see as a contemporary gospel, the easy, believe, feel-good gospel It's like a placebo that preachers feed to people, promising to heal all their woes, to fix all their problems, to smooth over over all of their worries. We can all imagine, though, the dangerous effects if doctors and surgeons in society actually began to believe that placebos were real medicine, that they really treated illnesses, that they weren't simply given to perhaps give people emotional effect or maybe even to do certain studies, uh, blind studies and things like that, but they actually did something to attack disease and to do away with it. Almost everyone recognizes that placebos can have an emotional impact on someone's life, but if, if doctors actually believed that placebos truly eliminated disease... They started handing those out to people whose illnesses were severe, whose bodies were failing. We would be overwhelmed as a society with the consequences of rampant disease and misery and illness and death. Because as we know, placebo, beyond the emotional effects, does nothing to address the real problems. In fact, if this were to happen, people would conclude, no doubt, that the problem is modern medicine, that modern medicine has failed us, that we couldn't look to it anymore for any kind of answers for our health. They would give up on medicine altogether when, in fact, the real problem is not medicine itself. It is the imposter. It is the placebo passing itself off as real medicine. Well, people have a similar kind of a crisis when it comes to the gospel message, people slowly and steadily have gotten rid of the true medicine of the gospel of, of faith and repentance, and they've replaced it with the placebo of easy believism, the feel-good gospel. Easy believism is that notion that God will grant salvation to people if they simply make some basic decision for Christ, if they make some sort of expression, some prayer of uh, of faith in him, some verbal profession of faith, if they repeat a sinner's prayer or sign a commitment card or go through a baptism ceremony or a confirmation class, if they simply are willing to publicly call themselves a Christian, if they have that kind of verbal profession of faith, they claim to have some identity with Christ, if they have all of that and swallow, if you will, the, the religious placebo, soothe their consciences, calm their fears, even ease in some way all of their topsy-turvy emotions, then everything's going to be fine. They are unaware that after after doing all of that, after going through all of those sort of outward expressions, that sin still eats away at their heart and mind like cancer. They may feel alive and well, but they will be doomed on the day of judgment. Well, These are the types of people that Jesus is describing for us in Matthew 7 here, beginning in verse 21, going all the way down through verse 27. Let me read this for us. Jesus says in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house Jesus is telling us here about a couple of tragedies. What links these two sort of sections together, verses 21 through 23, and then verse 24 through 27, is the shock of an unexpected tragedy. Two shocking events. On one hand, people showing up at the end of their life expecting to enter into the kingdom on the day of judgment. On the other hand, a crumbling house that was built on a faulty foundation and was not able to withstand the storm on the day of judgment. Both of them completely unexpected, both groups having falsely believed that they had prepared themselves, that they had, if you will, the, all the proper religious credentials and devotion That the life they were building, the house they were building, was strong. But on the most critical day of their existence, the day of judgment, both groups discover tragically that they were misguided, that they were self deceived, that they were self deluded, that they had believed a lie, and the lie was about themselves and about their salvation. The people in these two groups had bought into what is essentially the easy gospel, the easy believism gospel, the superficial gospel, the gospel that attracts many but saves none. You remember these are the final verses, as I said, of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where he had been giving to us his description of those who will inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's how it all started all the way back in chapter 5. In verse 3, where he talked about those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And now this is how he ends. Speaking of those who will, or in this case specifically, who are deceived into thinking they will, enter into the kingdom of heaven. And the point of this and the point of everything in between, all of it is clear. It's not simply those who believe that they think they'll go to heaven. It's not simply those even who make a verbal profession of faith. It's none of those people who have just simply heard the words of Christ who will enter into heaven. But it's those who are genuinely transformed by the power of God, who are transformed in such a way that they become true children of God, that they do the will of God from the heart. It is those people who will enter into the kingdom. Now, if all that you've heard or all that you had a chance to hear were just the final verses of this sermon, you might not understand what Jesus is saying here, you might imagine that he's putting all of the emphasis here on your personal moral achievement, your religious sort of devotion. This is going to be the determining thing as to whether you'll enter the kingdom or not. But that would be really to miss the whole point of the sermon, everything that he said so far where he began by telling us that it is those who are poor in spirit, those who, we might say, see their spiritual bankruptcy. Those who recognize not just that they have little to give, but that they have nothing to give. They're spiritually bankrupt. They're spiritually ruined. Those who come to realize that, he says, are the ones who inherit the kingdom of heaven. They don't earn it. It's given to them freely. They inherit it as a gift of grace. When they reach the point of their spiritual poverty is when they reach the point of their greatest riches. He's taking aim, particularly throughout the sermon, at religious people, pharisaical people, or religious people in any age, those who would be maybe... Uh, surrounded by, possibly even raised within Christian or religious homes who have assumed their entry into heaven. They've assumed their righteousness. They never really sensed a real need because they never really saw their own sin. They never reached a crisis of shame and guilt over their failures and their transgressions. They never reached the place of brokenness and spiritual bankruptcy. They never really understood their need for grace They never really saw it because they never really had to. They're religious. They're moral. They're respected by people around them. They were raised in religious environments. They kept religious duties. They were taught religious morals. They were brought up to believe in righteousness and they made the assumption of their own righteousness. These are the ones who are among the self-deluded. And Jesus is warning them here at the very end of the sermon. He's warning them, you have a kind of religion, you have a kind of faith, but it's a non-saving faith. You have a profession in Jesus Christ as Lord, but it's a non-saving profession. You've prayed prayers It would appear to God, but they're non-saving prayers. You've had a devotion, but it's a non-saving devotion. You seem to believe in God. You have some allegiance to Christianity or to the church or to the Bible, but you will never enter the kingdom. You are self-deceived because your faith is false. And that's what Jesus is explaining to these two groups in two different ways. We'll begin this week by just simply looking at the first of these two groups who he tells us in verse 21 through 23 suffered from the delusion of religion without relationships. They suffered from the delusion of religion without relationship. And he describes them here in verse 21 as those who say, Not everyone who says to me, or in verse 22, on that day, many will say to me. So they have a confidence partly because of their profession, because of the way they speak, because of the way they talk about Jesus, because of what they say, not only on the day of judgment, but no doubt throughout their lives, they're saying Lord, Lord, they're proclaiming the Lordship of Christ. This is a a word, by the way, which hasn't appeared yet in Matthew, but it would have been familiar to his listeners because the word Lord was used throughout the Jewish Bible, the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament, to speak about God. And so this is probably some sort of affirmation of the deity of Christ, so they had, we might say, strong doctrine, orthodox doctrine, good doctrine. Their verbal profession, however, no matter whether it was loud or frequent, did not indicate true spiritual transformation. Obedience had been neglected. Now, it's obvious they're not the only ones there. Jesus is telling us not everyone who says this, not everyone obviously means that there are others who will enter the kingdom of heaven. There are others who are there who are saying, Lord, Lord, and they are being welcomed in. There's nothing inherently wrong with what they're saying. In fact, it's very necessary. We're told by Paul in Romans chapter 10 that in order to be saved... You have to confess the lordship of Christ. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So Paul here, talking about your response to Christ, talks about it manifesting itself both outwardly in your confession and inwardly in your faith. And what you're doing is you're responding to Christ and His Lordship, declaring not only He is Lord, but He is your Lord. That your life is yielded to Him. Meaning that your attitude is one of submission. One of obedience. You yield your life, you acknowledge His Lordship, you're His ownership, that you're not your own, that you belong to Him, that you obey His commands. So confessing Jesus as Lord is one of the essential things to salvation. But not just confessing, actually believing it. Actually believing it. Believing that God raised him from the dead, that he is the sovereign Lord, and yielding your life to him. In other words, this is not just some outward thing it's not just some one-time prayer it's the expression the whole expression of your life whether it's difficult or whether it's hard this is the narrow way this is the narrow gate by which you enter into the pathway to heaven you yield your life completely unreservedly in totality to christ Jesus is saying that there will be some on that day, the day of judgment, who come with this sincere expression. They declare Jesus as their Lord and they reflect it in their life and they enter into the kingdom. But there are others who've been deluded. They think that because they say the right words, the words that they hear around them, that they are also on the narrow road when, in fact, they are on the broad road. They've entered only the wide gate that leads to destruction. Now, this is clearly shocking to them. This is not what they expected. They believed that they were safe. They believed that they had had, uh, taken care of all of the necessary credentials. And in fact, when Jesus turns them away, they're so surprised they begin to protest. It's really a tragic moment, if you think about it, to to think that you've come that far and everything that you've done, that you built your life on, you appear before the throne of God on the day of judgment. With a sense of expectation. A sense that you're one of His. Only to be deeply shocked and shaken. You can just imagine how the words must have sunken in or how they will sink in. In those final moments. The reality That you spent your whole life thinking that you were going to heaven, and now you are only moments from eternal hell. The torment, it must have already seized their hearts and minds as they realized that they had surrounded themselves for all of those years with religion, but they never knew the Savior. They had to grip them. They were self-deceived. They were self-deluded. And the reason they do that is because people often rely on false evidence. People clearly believe that their spiritual experience or their spiritual words or their zealous activity, all of those things indicate that they are headed to heaven. Here they say they've prophesied in Jesus' name. They've cast out demons in Jesus' name. They did many mighty works in Jesus' name. You might ask yourself, well, how in the world, how in the world could anyone do all of that stuff? I mean, how could someone do all of those miracles? How could someone Uh, be that involved? How could someone have all those evidence? How could someone preach? How could someone be a professor at a seminary, a missionary on the mission field? How could someone go to church their whole life or teach a Sunday school or whatever it might be? How could someone do all of that stuff and still miss the Savior? Well, it's because people cling to false evidences all the time. In this case, their prophecies and their miracles might have just been fake. Plenty of people do that. It happens all the time. They easily fool people around them, and they do it so often, they actually begin to think that they can fool God when they know their life is a sham. It's possible that their religious works were even inspired by Satan. The Scripture tells us that Satan disguises himself as an angel of of uh, of light, and his ministers disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. We're even told in Scripture that false Christ and false prophets, Matthew twenty four, will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Acts 16, you remember there was a slave girl who spoke prophecies of the future and we're told that she did so by a spirit or a demon of divination. Acts 19, there were seven sons of an unbelieving sorcerer named Sceva who went around casting out demons by, by demonic power. They were demons set against Demons. Or second Thess, Paul tells us that in the time of the tribulation, the coming of the lawless one, the Antichrist, will be by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. So there were, there are, and there will always be those who are presenting themselves as miracle workers or exorcists or whatever it might be, but doing it as satanic deceivers. I remember whenever I was a missionary in China for two years as a young man, uh, working around an island, trying to share the gospel, I would hear these stories coming particularly out of one city on the east coast of that island, Wenchang, about all these wonderful things that were taking place. People were being healed Prophecies were happening. I even heard about people being raised from the dead. I heard about levitations, transportations, people appearing and disappearing. I heard about all those things, all coming from this one little village called Chung. The only problem is, every time I heard about it, it was always associated with the traditional Chinese religion of Tai Chi. Or Qigong. All kinds of testimonies. Lots of people tell me that they had seen and experienced all of this stuff. But obviously, whatever it was, it didn't come from God. There have always been this kind of thing. All over the world and throughout time. It could be that God just simply chose from, uh, as he does from time to time... To do something amazing through an unbeliever, just like he did through Balaam, or even through Balaam's donkey, to prophesy, to do some great spiritual work. All of those things are certainly possible, but the issue here, the real issue, is that for all of these miraculous, amazing, zealous deeds, it was all... External. it was impressive to people around them but it wasn't impressive to God for all of their religious zeal for all of their religious works what really mattered at the end Jesus says is that he did not know them he didn't know them and they didn't know him no matter what they thought they knew, no matter how much they had been taught, no matter how orthodox their doctrine and all of their deeds, they didn't know him. This is what he says in verse 23, this tragedy, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. When he uses the word no, he's not using it in the sense of just intellectual awareness He's using it in the Hebrew sense of intimate relationship, like Amos 3.2, where God says of Israel, you only have I known of all the families on the face of the earth. He's not saying that he's unaware of other nations and other people groups. He means the same thing he says back in Deuteronomy 10.15, the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them you above all the peoples from the face of the earth as you are this day in other words when god says i know you like i don't know anyone else what he means is i have a relationship with you i've entered into a covenant with you i've set my affection on you And so Jesus is saying to these people, in spite of all your knowledge, in spite of all your outward zeal, in spite of all your religious work, I never had that kind of relationship of love with you. You had religion, but you never had that relationship of love with me. Now, you might ask yourself, how would I know? I mean, if I'm religious, if I go to church all the time, if I go to Sunday school and all the Bible studies, if I try to serve him, how would I know if I have that kind of relationship with God? How would I know if he set his love on me? How would I know if I love him? John answers the question in John, 1 John Chapter 2, verse 3. Now, by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. In fact, in the next verse, he, he goes and tells us very plainly whoever says, I know him, but doesn't keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So, you want to know how you know? Very simple. You keep his commandments. We're not talking about religious duties. We're not talking about spectacular uh, acts of service. We're talking about a heartfelt desire to yield your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ. The man who says, I know him, I have this relationship with him, but really isn't interested in obeying his command... John tells us very plainly, he has no credibility. He is a liar. If someone says, I know him, I made a profession, I walked an aisle, I believe in him, I prayed a prayer. John says, you can't just accept that without any kind of scrutiny. Many people get caught up in that kind of trap these days, that kind of superficial gospel they try to find assurance and try to pin their assurance on the fact that they prayed a prayer at some point, that they said the right words at some point, that they satisfied some, some uh, a preacher or Bible study leader or parent. John doesn't say, how do you know you know him? He doesn't say you look back on some decision you made at some point in your life. You look back on some profession of faith. He says, you look at your life now, you look at the present, do you keep His commandments? And if you don't, all of your profession of faith is a lie. Now, this basic principle you find throughout Scripture, Paul says in Titus 1.16, he speaks about those who, quote, profess to know God... But deny him by their works. So they they have some sort of outward profession, some sort of religious affiliation, some sort of religious environment. In fact, they're even in Titus they are they are presenting themselves as spiritual leaders, but they don't know him because they don't have the works. In fact, John says it this way in 1 John 2, 4. Remember, he says that not only are you a liar, but he says the truth is not in him, which is very similar to what he says the previous chapter when he says, for example, in John uh, 1 John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Or verse 10, if we do not, now, if we say we do not have, or excuse me, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So he keeps using this phrase, his truth is not in us, his word is not in us, his truth is not in us. All of this pointing to the same reality that the reason why you do not keep God's commandments The reason why you do not obey him is because God's word is not living within you. See, You see, whenever you have a relationship with God, whenever you enter into a relationship with God, this is what he does. He plants his word in your heart. He roots it in your heart. He sows the seed of the word in your heart and it sprouts up and it bears fruit and it digs roots. It isn't something, in other words, that is external. It is something that is very much internal. It takes place on the inside. It isn't just about some form of morality. It isn't just about keeping some set of rules. It isn't just about impressing lots of people around you and making your family happy with you. It is all about this work that God must do do in your heart. You see this in the Sermon on the Mount all the way back at the very beginning. Jesus talked about this in the Beatitudes. When he was talking about those who enter into the kingdom, he says one of the things that's true about them is that they hunger and they thirst for righteousness. Those are internal impulses, internal drives. All of this begins on the inside, in the heart. Paul says in Philippians 1.11, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ, or in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. John 8.31, Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word... You are my disciples indeed. And he tells them later, my word abides in you. All of this doesn't, doesn't just come out of nowhere. This is very much what God said he would do in the Old Testament. You remember in Jeremiah 31, he talked about the failure of the external law, the external Mosaic code how it could not transform Israel. And so consequently, they were living under this law and failing again and again and again. And rather than recognizing the problem, they, they just lied and deceived themselves. They denied their failure. In some cases, people don't even do that. They just criticize the law. The, the problem is not me. The problem is religion. But both of those things are misguided. It isn't that the law is bad, and it isn't that you are good. It's that the law is good, and you are bad. You remember Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Uh, My covenant that they broke, although I was their husband, declares the Lord. So in other words, I entered into this special relationship with them, I gave them my law, and they broke my law. Why? Because it was just some sort of external standard to them. He goes on, but this is the covenant that I'll make with Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I'll put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts. You hear how he's going to root his word within us. He's going to put his truth within us. The truth, the word, the law, it'll all be written on our hearts. It'll be it'll pl- be placed on the inside. And he goes on to say, "And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You know what that is? Relationship. That's relationship. That's not religion. In fact, he goes on. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, and I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That is true salvation. You know how you can tell a new covenant person? You know how you can tell someone whose sin or whose iniquity iniquity has been forgiven and their sin is remembered no more? You know how you can tell that? Because they have the law, they have the word, they have the truth implanted in them. God's word abides within them. His law is written on their hearts. And whatever is in a man's heart controls how he lives. As the scripture says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Or it the exact opposite of what... Darby was quoting earlier what Jesus says in Matthew 15, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me because the word was far from them. To know God, to know Christ, to enter into this kind of relationship with him, you have to do, first of all, a confession of your own hardness of heart, of your own sin, of your own need, of your own lack And then secondly, you have to pray and ask God to give you this new heart, this heart with his word, with his law written on it, so that you can say with the Apostle Paul, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. That's the kind of person who's moved beyond religion and has entered into a relationship. The Word of God is not something external to you, it is something you cherish. It's not something you do outwardly, it's something you hunger and thirst to do. A person who's genuinely born again will have a heart that eagerly desires to guard and to keep and to carefully follow the commandments of God. It's not enough just to pray. It's not enough just to say, Lord. It's not enough just to say, I've I've professed him or even that I've served him in some way. With all of that, you may still find yourself on that day hearing from the Lord, I never knew you or the truth is not in you or the word is not in you. And you will face the shock of this tragedy. Jesus pictures these people who were religious apparently for much of their life but they never entered the narrow gate. And here they stand at the end and they're locked out. Sadly, Luke tells us that they start beating on the door, say, Lord, open up to us expecting that somehow, some way, they can make it right at the end. And his reply is chilling. He'll answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. This is total, total unfamiliarity. Not literally, not as if the Lord had never even conceived of them, but he's communicating, I have nothing to do with you. It's the most tragic time, the most shocking time, to discover that all your life you were wrong. You have been consumed with pleasing people around you. You've been consumed with the applause and the pats on the back and the accolades from people. But on that tragic day, it does you no good. It's so grieving to think about people standing, pleading, wanting to enter into the kingdom, but they can't because they never knew the Savior. You don't get in just by asking, you don't get in just by praying. You don't get in just by joining a church. You don't get in just by being raised in a Christian home, knowing Christian people. There's only one way to enter. That is by confessing yourself spiritually impoverished, spiritually bankrupt, empty, and wanting, and asking God to fill you with a new heart. one more kind of delusion that Jesus mentions in verse 24 through 27 and that'll have to wait for next time. Let's stand together as we're dismissed with a word of prayer. Lord, we pray for those who are here this morning who are deluded, who are deceived. They have the shame. They have the yearning in their heart to be free They believe that they can cover it all up by the warmness of relationships around them, by the applause of men and women around them, but none of it will ever answer for their guilt, only knowing you. So, Lord, we pray for your mercy. That you would help them to see their self-deception. That you would open their blind eyes. That you would call them to yourself and plant your word in their heart. Forgive their sins and redeem them for your namesake. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.